All right, if you would open your Bibles to John chapter 12, as I get situated here as well. It is a, a special, unique, and joyful privilege to be here, as Billy was was saying, I, I feel that, and um, <clears throat> we were very excited to come. I, uh, I, so I came to faith in this church 25 years ago as a young guy, a teen, much skinnier, um, and, and, uh, um, but uh, the, the Lord just used those years as shaping, shaping years for me. Uh, I, I was able to be in close discipleship relationships with, with Billy, with Hugh, with Alan, there are several others. I mean, I see Neil in the back, Terry St. John. There, there are some real veterans in this room. And uh, just having the joy and privilege of being in a relationship with these, these folks. And, and especially just Billy as my pastor. There was a point as a young man, I just said, I want to grow. And what better way to grow than to meet with my pastor? And, and, my, and so I, he, he provided opportunity for that. And now as a pastor... I recognize the labor and sacrifice that he, he poured into my life. Those moments, those lunch meetings, those breakfast meetings, we used to meet for breakfast, and sometimes as a young guy, I would sleep in and not show up, and it just, I was truly the, would you call me a doofus McDoofus or something, and I really was that, and <clears throat> so just so grateful, but those were very formative, shaping years of my life, and so um, my, one, my family is still in the church here, my parents, my sister, and her family. Um, Fifteen years ago, I moved away, and I, I told my family, I think I'll just be gone for a year or two, and I'll come back. And then 15 years fly by. Uh, it's amazing. Um, the Lord has taken me uh, to other Sovereign Grace churches. I became a member of uh, the Sovereign Grace Church in Seguin, which was adopted almost right before I, had, I went there. Uh, then my family and I went to Louisville, uh, to the pa- Sovereign Grace Pastors College there, and we're a part of the church there. And here's what I love. Though I was away, this church, if you've been here, actually supported me and my family to go. So you, you sacrificially gave towards us going to the Pastors College while we lived 500 miles away. It was amazing. And so our hearts just continued to be knitted with you. We went back to Seguin, where I served there. We, we lived there for 12 years. And um, eventually, from there, just overcome with a heart for the gospel to go forth, for Christ to be made known, as you sang this morning, um, we moved to San Antonio and planted Mission City Fellowship with around 25 people from, from Seguin, from Sovereign Grace Church in Round Rock, from Sovereign Grace Church in El Paso, people just kind of coming and flocking and saying, we... We have the heart to see Christ exalted too, and, and we're going to go, and, um, and you supported us in that. Thank you. Thank you. Literally, God has used this church in major foundational ways in my life, in Christ-exalting ways. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your affection and your love for us. We are so grateful. A church plant has happened through this church, and we, we are grateful. Um, the, the Mission City Fellowship brings you greetings. I, I was told specifically by several people that I had to say this. Um, they say thank you. Thank you for your investment. Thank you for your partnership. We wish we were closer to you. We would definitely have partnered with you in this marriage retreat if we were, if we were closer. 
Um, but they say thank you for your sacrifice. And yes, please come for a church plant, for a young church. We're still a young church. It is always encouraging to have other members of Sovereign Grace Churches come and visit, to join in in the voices of songs that are being sung, to join in in the, the amens, and to join in in just being an encouragement. Please stop by. Please come in. Um, it, it's, it's nice to meet in a building that's an actual church building. We meet in a movie theater, and we've done that now for almost three years, uh, but it has been a blessing to us. But you can hear rumblings of like Spider-Man in the next room, and it's a little awkward. We ha- we've had people visit and then say, yeah, it's a little too much for me. I, you know, I can't stay around maybe for that rumbling. Um, but it is what it is. Uh, we, we met for a while, just in a park, starting off with 25 of us singing to Jesus and preaching. And eventually, the snowstorm of, of all snowstorms hit, and we said, okay, we need to be in a building, I think. And so we met in a building. So thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your support. Keep praying for us. Keep asking Jesus to exalt himself and to build his church. The church is, is now somewhere between 140 and 160, and we just are meeting in this little movie theater wanting Jesus to be exalted. So keep praying for us. Keep praying for us. All right. John chapter 12, you might be thinking, what? these Sovereign Grace pastors love John, the Gospel of John. I don't know, what's up with Gospel of John? Uh, we were just in John for seven years or something. But, um, uh, so John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Follow along with me as I read God's word. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples... He who was about to betray him said, Why was this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus. Lord, I, in some ways I feel awkward standing here, Lord, with the lights on me and everyone looking this way. But Lord, I... I pray most of all, you would be so exalted in this moment, so high and lifted up, so put before our eyes, Lord, that it would feel as if I'm unseen and the church would just gaze upon you gloriously. Oh, Lord, may our hearts be filled up with an awareness of your worth and your glory and your goodness And may it overcome us. Lord, have your way. Have your way in us. Build your church, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church says, amen. Amen.
Um, I'm only 37, but one show my family and I have watched, or my wife and I have watched, you ever heard of Antiques Roadshow? Not many 37-year-olds are watching Antiques Roadshow on PBS, but here, here you go. There you go. I've always said Phil Claybrook was the cooler Phil in the church, and that's true. It's true, true even today. Um, Antiques Roadshow, there's a, an episode where, well, if you're not familiar with Antiques Roadshow, let me just fill you in. Um, so people will bring things that they are questioning or wondering, you know, actually, could this be of any value? And they bring it, and an appraiser looks at it and can tell them, no, this is not worth anything, or actually, this is worth a lot. Well, there was an, an older gentleman on uh, one episode that brought a blanket to be appraised. And it looks, at, at first looking at it, you're thinking, that's probably not worth anything. And you're looking at this blanket, and he, he brings this blanket, and as the appraiser looks at it, there's a point where the appraiser then turns to, to this man, and almost losing his breath, he sort of says, sir, are you a, are you a wealthy man? And the, the older man, he says, no, I'm not a wealthy man, you know. And he says, well, sir, what you have here is a treasure. What you have here is a national treasure. This, this blanket is not a normal blanket. This blanket is of extravagant worth, worth almost half a million dollars. This blanket belonged to an old Navajo chief, what you have here. And the, how what do you think the man's response was? He didn't just kick back and say, oh, well, okay. No, this man was overcome in that moment. This man, who at first was sort of just calm and relaxed and just, well, let's see, $20 maybe for this blanket. No, this man was overcome, his breath taken away. It's tears swelling up. His voice begins to quiver. And he just, I, I thought it was just a normal blanket. I had it on just an old chair. The back of a chair, he says. I had no idea how much worth this was. Do you think that man would go on from that moment treating that blanket as he had before? No way. We would say, you're crazy if you went back home and just put that blanket back on that old chair. And just kick back on it, drink your coffee next to it. We would say, you're silly. If You would be crazy if that's how you responded after finding out that this was of extravagant worth. The only right response in knowing that you have something of extravagant worth. Think of, think of your home. What is of extravagant worth? What would you consider of, to be of extravagant worth? You treat it differently, don't you? You put your silver up where it can't be touched by the children. You, you, you do all sorts of things, right? You, this man would not go home treating this. What do we do when we have something of extravagant worth? We admire it. We adore it. We treasure it. We put it in a place so that when someone walks in our home, they see it. And we get to talk about it. Oh, let me tell you about the, this, how much worth this is. Let me tell you how special this is. We can't help but declare what we admire or what we hold as extravagantly great, right? We all do it. We all do it. We are made by God, and I think we could think of other scriptures and uh, other passages in scripture 
that would say this. We are made by God in such a way that what we treasure, we will love and we will admire, we will adorn. And what we love, we cannot help but declare its worth and value to others. That's what's happening in John chapter 12. But it is far greater than an old Navajo chief's blanket that's being declared, isn't it? Jesus is sitting at the dinner table of Lazarus and Martha and Mary. The dinner is interrupted with a declaration and a display of the wonderfully overwhelming worth of Jesus and the treasure that he is, and we are to respond. I jokingly said, how long did y'all spend in the Gospel of John? Really? Two years? Three years? Seventeen? There's... There, you guys have been in the Gospel of John. You, you, you may even remember Billy preaching the sermon. And, and I'll go ahead and tell you, it's probably up here. Just prepare your, right here for today. You have a wonderful pastor who loves you and pours his heart out every sermon. I know it. The Gospel of John constantly, if you remember, think back, does this. It constantly puts Jesus, he constantly puts Jesus before us to see him for all he is. To see him, to look upon him for who he is. And John just loves doing that. He just says, look at Jesus. Look at him. And he puts before us constantly, here is the right, wonderful, good, and glad response to knowing Jesus. When your eyes have been opened to the worth of Jesus, this is how you respond. But he also holds up those who don't respond rightly. If you remember in the Gospel of John, there's these there's guys called Pharisees, and there's all these people who don't respond to Jesus rightly. And he holds these two things up. That's why people often point to the Gospel of John as an evangelistic tool. He says, look at Jesus. Respond. Here's how you respond to Jesus rightly. Here's a wrong response. And then what I love about the Gospel of John and the Word of God is he then turns to us, and he says, now you respond. How then will you respond to beholding this marvelous and extravagantly great Jesus? That's the call for today. Very simple, very simple, yet wonderful. As our eyes, I would say this would be the main point, as our eyes are open to the extravagant worth of Jesus, would we then respond that he would be our treasure that we would treasure him, that we would adore him, that we would love him. This is a total run-on sentence, so don't just, just throw it in. Love him, worship him, and live to declare his extravagant worth. Live to declare. Saints, if an old man who finds out he has this great blanket can turn and say, look at this blanket. Cannot the saints of God, his church, behold Jesus and then turn and say, Oh, world, look at this marvelous Jesus. May that be the call. May that be you, Sovereign Grace Church. And it already is. It already is. Oh, let's keep going. Oh, we are already way behind on time. First, the worth of Jesus declared, verses 1 through 3. The worth of Jesus declared. As Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem... For the Passover, tuck that away in your pocket, and we'll talk about that in a moment. He stops back in the town of Bethany where the sisters Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus live. <coughs> and they are hosting a dinner for Jesus to honor Jesus. And why are they honoring Jesus? 
Just to refresh your memory, in John chapter 11, what happened right before these verses that we just read was one of the greatest miracles of Jesus. Lazarus, brother of Mary and Martha, dies in John chapter 11. He's dead for days. He's buried in a tomb or put away in a tomb, locked, keyed, sealed up, done for. Martha, Mary, run to Jesus. Jesus declares an amazing truth to them. I'm the resurrection and the life. Believe in me. He goes to the tomb of Lazarus. And we see this confluence, this coming together of the God-man. God in human flesh and just the power of God exploding through human voice. He says, Lazarus, come out. And what happens? Creation, death itself bows to the power and words of Jesus. And Lazarus comes out living. The resurrection and the life revealed himself in that moment and spoke resurrection life into Lazarus. And here we go. The greatest miracle. And so here are Mary and Martha. They have beheld, and now Lazarus, they have looked upon Jesus, and he truly, his his extravagant worth has been declared to them. Who is this? There is none other like him. No one else can do this kind of thing. Their eyes have been opened to the extravagant worth of Jesus. And you could say the, 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 the pillar marker of that that revealed that to them was the empty tomb and the resurrection of Lazarus. And so now here they are with a little sweet desire to say thank you and they are then at a table with Jesus. One commentator that I read as I was studying this passage, he said this little line and I love it. This is a beautiful picture of Jesus with his friends. We'll talk about this later, but I'll tell you what, a little nugget. It's a foreshadowing of what awaits us for eternity. Oh. I'll just tell you, you can't imagine how long my Bible reading takes and how long it takes me to get through the Bible. Because <laughs> you could just sit on that all day. Don't just move past that. Jesus is on his way to the Passover. He's on his way to the most horrific thing that will happen in his earthly life. And yet he stops to eat with his people. How sweet is our Savior. So he sits at their table in sweetness. They are thankful. They are hosting this immeasurably worthy Jesus. And now here is Martha. At Jesus' feet. We, Martha in John chapter 11 verse 32 had already been at Jesus' feet. She was at Jesus' feet weeping because Lazarus had died. And now, here she is, sweet sister, interrupting the, the, the dinner as she once again postures herself at the feet of Jesus. This time, with a heart overflowing with gratefulness and an extravagant display of love. For Jesus. Mary takes a pound of expensive ointment, and I love how John includes that word expensive. He wants us to know this was a lot, uh, had a lot of worth to it. 
This is an expensive ointment, a perfume that we learn later is worth 300 denarii. During this time, one denarii was about a day's income for an average person. So 300 denarii is about a year's income for, for an average person. That was the worth of what was being poured out on Jesus. That was the worth of this expensive ointment or this expensive perfume. And Mary interrupts this dinner by taking this perfume or this ointment, this oil, and falling at the feet of Jesus. And she begins to pour it on Jesus's feet. As she, and, and in doing that, she takes her hair and begins to wipe his feet with her hair. We read that. And I don't, I don't, I don't know. Well, maybe I should just speak for myself. So I could read that and without pause, just kind of say, oh, okay. And then go to the next verse. Oh, that's cool. That's sweet. How odd is that? That's not normal at the dinner table. We're supposed to eat, Mary. Not go to the feet of somebody and start pouring ointment on them and then using your hair to wipe their feet. It's not normal. John intends to grab our hearts that way. This was not normal. This was sort of shocking. At the dinner table, she does this. This would have just caught everyone off guard. Not a normal activity. And then on top of that, culturally, to deal with someone's feet like this is just not a respectable thing. Culturally, it just would not have been something that anybody would have done. (coughs) It was reserved for the lowest of lows. I think of this. Do you remember the old show, Dirty Jobs? There's also dirty jobs, right? This guy would go, he would find the grossest, dirtiest jobs that no one wanted to do. And he would go and do the job almost to prove, see, no one wants to do this job. This is a truly dirty job. Had dirty jobs existed during the time of Jesus, this job would have been on dirty jobs. It would have declared, this, this is gross. This is not something that people do. You don't just touch people's feet. People are coming in from walking all day with sandals on in dirty and filthy streets, dirt-type streets most likely, where animals have been pulling carts. You've been to a parade, and you've seen longhorns and horses walking down the street in a parade. It's not clean. There are people purposed behind them to pick up behind them for a reason. We, we know what's happening in these streets. And so here are people who, who are walking in the streets. Here are people who are all over the place. And, and they're walking with these feet being exposed. And now here they are sitting at the table to eat at the table. Gross. Mary taking this place at Jesus' feet and touching these feet would have been taking the most humbling position in the room, the lowest of lows. John, John has almost been saying this over and over again throughout the Gospel of John. That's the right position when we encounter Jesus. He is highly exalted, and we are low. If you remember, he even starts the Gospel of John by pointing out John the Baptist who highlights this, who says Jesus first enters the scene and John John the Baptist can't help himself. He says, oh my goodness, God in human flesh has come, the, the one who will save us, the Lamb of God. What is the right response? And he says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. 
The gospel of John gives us these clues. He says that is the right position when we encounter Jesus. He is highly exalted and we bow down at his feet. I love that. What a good reminder for people who often exalt ourselves and almost feel like Jesus needs to bow to what I want. I want to do this, Jesus, and it doesn't go my way. Jesus, why? Why, Jesus? As if Jesus is bowing at your feet. John, from first verses, and now here with Mary, is saying, this is the greatest one in all the world, in beyond, in all the universe. Bow down. Mary takes that place. And what makes it even more amazing is the turn of that. John is almost reminding us through that, all throughout John, bow down to Jesus, and then what does Jesus do, right? Jesus humbles himself, takes the lowest form in all the room, and washes the feet of his disciples. This is an otherworldly Jesus, isn't he? Amazing and sweet and wonderful. So here Mary is at the dinner table recognizing the worth of Jesus and what is the right posture to have at his feet, humbling ourselves and exalting him. You could say, and I'm sorry, I have to cough, over this bronchitis. I just don't have time for it. I don't have time for it. <laughs> you could say this, the lowest part of him is so much higher and greater than the greatest part of us, right? Oh, oh. That's what is being declared as Mary wipes his feet with her hair. He is extravagantly worthy and greater than the greatest part of me. A woman's hair was not like some just thing mistreated in, in society and in culture and even in scripture, right? It was her honor. It was her covering. It was beautiful. What does Paul say in, in 1 Corinthians? It's, it's her beautiful glory. You guys will get there soon. You're in 1 Corinthians. It's her glory. It, it was considered, I mean, her, her identity would have been tied to it. Her social status, in a way, how people looked and viewed her would have been tied to her hair. If you did your hair a certain way, people had immediate thoughts of you. Social status was tied to it. Honor was tied to it. Glory was tied to it. And she takes what is her honor, what is her identity, what is her social status. She takes what, what is her glory, in a sense, her beautiful glory, and she takes what may have been her most valued possession, and she lays them at the feet of Jesus. She takes who she is and what she has. And she bows down at Jesus' feet. She lays it there for, for Jesus. Who she is and what she has. It was a declaration 
that no matter how glorious these earthly things may be to me, no matter the worth or value people put on them, Jesus is my greatest treasure. Who she is and what she has bowed down to Jesus. Jesus is her treasure. Not only can you see this extravagant display of love for Jesus in worship, but you can smell it tangibly. I love this. You can smell it tangibly. We're told the house is filled or was filled with the fragrant aroma of this perfume. House filled with it. I love getting home and opening the door and this aroma of dinner just bursting out of the doorway into my nostrils. And I love food. And it just this aroma filling the home or even I have to office at home because we obviously don't have a building and so there are times when I'm already home but I open my door and there it goes it just hits me and I love it and and I and I often will say my wife's here she can attest to this I would just say oh it smells so good in here love and she'll respond oh I'm making this sweetie you know or whatever and love and and what I love is she'll come around the corner to, to say that, you know. And so I see her. And, and so it's, yes, it's this aroma of food that fills the home and fills my heart and, and all that kind of stuff. But it's coming from my wife. And I know that that aroma means something. It, it says so much more than hamburger helper or whatever it might be. <laughs> it says so much more. Then spaghetti. I, maybe I shouldn't have said hamburger helper. That's, me, that's, that's wishful thinking on my part. Wishful thinking. Shows you guys my diet. That's why I have health problems. Uh, eating too much hamburger helper. Uh, but it declares so much more, right? It's declaring more than just food. It, it, it declares the love of a wife. It, that, that aroma declares the love of a mom. That aroma is declaring, I have sacrificed and laid down my life to prepare this for you. Come and enjoy. That's what the aroma is declaring. It's beyond just food. That's what's happening in this house. The aroma is beyond ointment. The aroma is beyond an oil. The aroma is saying, Jesus is here, and he's infinitely worthy, and he's the greatest treasure. Come and bow down and worship and love him and look upon him. That's what the aroma is declaring to us. It's beautiful. The Lord is so kind to speak to us in ways I think we can begin to grasp hold of. This aroma that fills the house. In Philippians chapter 4, the, Lord, the word of the Lord would de- describe that when we give of who we are and what we have sacrificially, it is as an aroma. It is a fragrant offering that rises up to the Lord and is pleasing to him. Do you see the connection? It's physically happening with Mary. And in Philippians 4, he says, we all can do that. We all live that way. We all can make this pleasing aroma of worship and love to Jesus. Saints, I would ask you this question. What is the aroma of your life? What is the aroma of your life? What do people walk, in a, walk away with a whiff of? 
What do they know that you love and cherish? Is it Jesus? Is it this worshiping and treasuring of Christ himself that says he is infinitely worthy? He's better than anything in this world. And so when they encounter you, they say, oh my goodness, it's just this whiff of Christ himself. What they talk about, what they enjoy, what they get excited about, what they spend their time on, what they love, all of it. As I encounter them, it's just this whiff of Jesus. And not that you can't enjoy other things. There's, we live in a world where God has created things for us to enjoy in such a way that brings him glory. So maybe are you enjoying things, yet still the aroma being, oh, he is still mostly great and high and exalted of my life. This is good, but he is glorious. Baseball's good, but Jesus is better. Oh my. What is the aroma of your life? What's the, does the aroma of love and worship and treasuring Christ fill your home and apartment? Is that the aroma of young, young people? Is that the aroma of your room? You may not have a full, that may sound silly, like, you know, like dirty socks and stuff, so the aroma of my room. Is that the aroma, though, of your life when you walk out of that room? I love and treasure Jesus. And your parents just catch up big whiff of that. What is the aroma of your life? What's the aroma, what's the aroma coming from, permeating from your home and your neighborhood? The treasure of Jesus is here. What is it? Your neighbor's walking by. Oh man, <laughs> can't stand talking to those people. The aroma just keeps coming of Jesus. What is the aroma of your life? What's the aroma? Is Christ the aroma, our love for him, our worship of him? Is that what your coworkers encounter? Is that what your friends encounter? Is that, what you, is that the aroma of your marriage? Gospel-centered marriage. Is that the aroma of your marriage? Jesus is our treasure. Is that the aroma of our parenting? Is that the aroma of your singleness? Jesus is my treasure. Or, when people encounter you, do they catch a whiff of a different aroma? Is it an aroma of treasuring and worshiping something else in this world? What overflows out of you? And what are they catching an aroma of? When we see the worth of Jesus, it should compel us to take who we are and what we have in a life of loving, treasuring, and worshiping Jesus. Oh, saints, and may that continue to be the aroma of this church. When the door opens in this neighborhood, oh my. I just want to encourage you too. I know your pastor, and that aroma is strong. <laughs> the aroma of loving Christ is strong. I'm so grateful for it. Not everyone responds this way. The second part, John wants us to see, we see the worth of Jesus denied. Verses four through six. When we learn that Judas, the one who will betray Jesus and yet is masked as a disciple of Jesus, is sitting at the table as well. John inserts this moment in sort of a, and it sort of kind of catches us off guard, right? We've been, we've been 
caught up in beholding the worth of Jesus for the last, I'm not even going to tell you how long we've been in those first three verses. We've been beholding Jesus and just saying he's, in, he's infinitely worthy. And so here's how we respond. And we've been seeing how Mary just loves him and is responding to him. And then Judas enters in and confronts Mary with what appears to be a righteous response. And it sort of grabs us and it's, I think it's intended to. Here's the foolishness and silliness of denying the worth of Jesus. He says, why was this not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? It sounds righteous, doesn't it? It sounds holy in a way. Isn't that interesting? We can sort of sound righteous, but be incredibly ungodly. Essentially, he's saying, why was something so valuable wasted on Jesus? John makes sure that we know what's really happening in Judas's heart. Verse 6, he tells us he cared nothing about the poor, but was a thief. A thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Even though Judas <clears throat> has been living life around Jesus and around Jesus' people, Judas doesn't love the poor like Jesus. J Judas doesn't love Jesus. Judas loves Judas. That's what we get a glimpse of here. You, we see the extravagant love of Mary for an extravagantly great Jesus. And then you know what happens? We see an extravagant love of Judas for Judas. Judas doesn't love Jesus. Judas loves Judas. And he loves himself so much that he's willing to steal from Jesus. He's a thief. But he doesn't just steal money for himself. In his heart, he's trying to steal the worship of Jesus for himself. In his mind, Jesus is not worth this extravagant love and worship. Jesus isn't worth this expensive perfume, worshiping and loving Jesus. He isn't worth the, the, the money that could have been gained for my own benefit. That's what's in his heart and is, is just coming out of him. As he's watching this loving worship of Jesus, he's angered by it. He's angered by Jesus getting worship. By people adoring Jesus, he's angered by it. Wild. When I was a teen, not yet come to faith, my eyes had not been opened to the extravagant worth of Jesus. But my mom's eyes had been. And I saw it, and it was permeating our home, and I hated it. She had a little devotional by her chair and the Bible, and she always loved to read about Jesus. And we get in the car, and what do you think? She loved to listen to music about Jesus. And, and she, we'd talk about something, and I'm like just sharing a hard thing at school or whatever it might be, and she wanted to talk about Jesus in light of that. And just, just trust in Jesus. All this, she wanted to talk about Jesus. She wanted to watch things about Jesus. She wanted to go to church with other people who loved Jesus. And I hated it. I just wanted to go and do what I want to do. I want to go and enjoy my earthly treasures. I want to go with my friends who love worldly things. I want to go to that sinful relationship. I want to be out of this. This aroma stinks to me. I was blind to the beauty and magnificence and extravagant worth of Jesus. Jesus. 
It was wicked. When I, when I read about Judas, oh man, I can't help but say, oh, that was, I was Judas. Wanting glory and wanting to still worship. I hated worship of Jesus. I wanted to still worship away. That's what makes denying the worth of Jesus so horrific. Oh. Notice Judas sounds religious and spiritual. He's hanging out among people who definitely are, but Jesus was not Judas's treasure. Judas treasured the things of this world, worshipped himself, wanting to pour on himself the earthly riches of personal gain. He probably wouldn't have complained if Mary poured it on his feet. He denied the worth of Jesus and elevated the worth of this world. And it was declared by his love for sin and self. That's what sin does in our hearts. We devalue Jesus and exalt ourselves and earthly treasures. That's what we're always tempted to in a moment of sin. That's, that's what's happening. Jesus is being devalued. And I'm being tempted to exalt my own earthly treasures and desires and passions and pleasures. Instead of humbly bowing at his feet, we bow at the passions and pleasures of this world. The Pharisees did, did the very same thing all throughout the Gospel of John. They valued power and politics. They denied Jesus. They saw what he did, but yet denied him. His worship and his glory. They, they, they desired power and politics and personal gain above Jesus, and now here is Judas with the same heart, valuing money and comfort and self-indulgence above Jesus. And, and, and we actually do. It's, it's so, I just love the word of God of how he connects it all. Here he is holding up to us. Jesus, Judas hated Jesus getting worship worth 300 denarii and beyond. But, but what would he do later? We all know the answer. He does put a value on Jesus, doesn't he? He puts a worth on Jesus in his eyes when he betrays him for a cost. 30 denarii. How wicked. Sin leads us to devaluing Jesus and exalting things that are worthless in this world. 30 a month's wages? You would kill a man? How silly. Can I say this, saints? How stupid. Sin leads us to doing and making stupid decisions like that. Where we devalue Jesus and we value things of, of no worth. But we hold them up as if that's the eternal value there. I want that so bad. I want to be in this relationship. That's what we see. Man. <laughs> People going into these sinful relationships, valuing the sinful relationship, getting nothing out of it, and devaluing their relationship with Jesus. Earthly treasures, putting a high value on the weekend. Yet the treasure of Christ's people is nothing to me. Sin is deceptive. Sin wants to take things that are, can be good, 
but wants to make them glorious in our eyes. And wants to make the glorious one just simply good. Saints, a question for you. When we see something like this in Scripture, I think it's appropriate to ask this question. Where are you tempted to overvalue the things of this world and devalue Jesus? Maybe it's your time. I value my time. Maybe it's your energy, your privacy, that sinful relationship. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's my job, my reputation. You could lose that job if you value Jesus, but you're willing, you're willing to do that. If you, or you're willing to not value Jesus in light of losing that job. Maybe it's your weekend whatever it may be. Sin is always tempting us to value things greatly, more greatly than Jesus. Do you count everything as loss compared to the worth of knowing Jesus? So that then that would lead you to treasuring Jesus and holding the things of this world loosely. Or do I count loving and worshiping Jesus as loss? compared to the things I really want in this world. You hear the opposite? There's an opposite there. Do I count everything as loss for knowing Jesus, or do I count Jesus, knowing Jesus as the loss to having these other things? Last, the worth of Jesus displayed. The worth of Jesus displayed, verses 7 through 8. Judas <clears throat> is not fooling Jesus. And Jesus responds to Judas, I love this, hear the courage of your shepherd. Leave her alone. Now we can use that word, you big dummy. <laughs> Leave her alone, you gobbledygook, or whatever you say, Billy. <laughs> Leave her alone. Look at the courage of Jesus confronting this false accuser. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, for, for the poor you always will have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus, Jesus is not help, belittling, helping the poor. He speaks a lot to that in Scripture. He's calling Judas out for his lack of seeing the worth of Jesus rightly. <coughs> it was fitting. In this declaration, it was fitting, Jesus is saying, and right for Mary to honor and love and worship Jesus in the way that she did because Jesus is really worthy of it. He's really worthy of it. But Jesus makes it clear that her act of anointing his feet was more meaningful and important than even she knew. It was pointing to something. Here's what I love about Scripture. The way God has pieced together his word, it blows me away, and I love it. Even this, this section, John chapter 12, verses 1. So look at your Bible. John chapter 1 and then verse 8, the, the, the last part of that, or verse 7 and 8, it's even book-ended. We say book-ended. The, the fancy way is pericope. I don't want to say that. No one knows what that means. So it's just a book-end, a beginning and an end. And what is John talking about in this section? He begins pointing to the Passover, and he follows up in verse 7 talking about Jesus' burial. What is he trying to get our attention to look at now? Where Jesus is headed. Jesus is trying to get our attention. Look where I'm headed. 
look, there's something happening. There's something more glorious than what you've witnessed, than what you saw that declared my worth with Lazarus. There's something greater happening here that I want you to look at. For Mary's life, what declared the worth of Jesus to her? It was seeing Jesus, the power in his life, the resurrection life, rush upon Lazarus and bring him to life out of death and the empty tomb and resurrection of Lazarus, right? That was the pillar marker of her life to say, whoa, Jesus is true. There is none other like him. He is unmatched in glory and power and majesty. Worship him, love him, treasure him. And now Jesus is saying, there's another pillar marker coming. There's another pillar marker coming, Mary and Martha and Lazarus and even Judas, that I want you to look at, and it's ahead of me. It's the Passover. It's my burial. It's the cross where I will enter a tomb. But that tomb will not remain with me in it. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, just look to that burial and anoint me, get ready me, prepare me for the most glorious moment of my earthly life. We read it earlier in our call to worship where he will humble himself more than anyone could in this world as he took upon himself the sin of humanity and he allowed himself to be hung to a cross as a sinner. And what does it say? That he would be highly exalted. That every knee will bow and every tongue confess he is Lord. And Jesus almost as if Jesus is saying, look to that. There's something coming. This burial that's going to happen. And what does the burial declare? Just like Lazarus, it's this pillar marker. Death, the cross, crucified, buried. And then, empty tomb. Resurrection life. Glorious ascension. And it would not just be for Lazarus that day. It would be for you and all of his people for eternity. Amen? Oh, that is what we're looking at here. That's what he's pointing to. Mary, the pillar marker of your life where you see Jesus' glory declared and where you say he is worthy is the, the, the empty tomb and, and resurrection of Lazarus. Where do we look? Jesus' empty tomb and his resurrection where we say he is glorious and mighty and worthy of praise. And we never stop looking there. We never look away. We never turn away. It's the pillar marker of the Christian life where he grows good things in us and he blooms beautiful praise in our hearts as we look upon the empty tomb, the empty cross, and his glorious resurrection. And then you, you, you know, I wonder if you caught this. At the beginning of these verses, the first three verses, what was, the, what was the process? It was empty tomb, resurrection life, sitting at the table with Jesus, honoring Jesus and worshiping him and loving him. What is our story? Burial, resurrection, empty, or empty tomb, empty cross, glorious ascension, our resurrections in him seated at the table with our Savior. Honoring Him. His glad and invited guest sitting at the table. Mary couldn't contain herself as she sat at the table. That's us. You can't sit at the table with Jesus after what He's done and just sit there and eat potatoes. 
you've got to worship. You bow down, you say, you are wonderful. You cling to those feet. I feel sorry for you because I'm going to be pushing y'all back, <laughs> clinging to those feet. I can't share these feet. He's all mine. I want to live that way, church. I want you to live that way. I want my church, my precious saints there in San Antonio to live that way. I just, I just want to go under the table and just grab his feet and never let go. Oh, I just can't wait for that day. You know, we just had a funeral yesterday. I'm sorry. My church is used to this. Ten minutes of the sermon is just this. That's why it's always so long. We had a funeral yesterday. I'm hearing a mom and a dad talk about seeing their little baby. And it makes you long for the day. Empty tomb. Glorious resurrection. At the feet of Jesus. At the table forever. Only there will be no Judases at the table. Just all glad and happy saints. Joining in the praise saying yes. Worthy. Worthy for all eternity. That's the picture. And it starts today, though. That life of endless honoring and gladness in Jesus starts today. Doesn't begin, doesn't begin in eternity, it begins now. And it will continue on in eternity. Saints, if you want to grow, maybe today you've been saying, man, I, I just recognize there's pockets of my life where the aroma of my life is not worship. It's not love of Christ. Saints, I would just encourage you as a church, here's as a pastor, here's what you feel like. You're just saying every day, I just want to point my people to Jesus so that they would see and behold him. He is the glorious light of this darkened world. What do we do? We, this world is filled with darkness. We still feel some of that, don't we, as we deal with sin. And we want to combat the darkness. I mean, it's almost as if we want to shoo it away, like, get out, darkness. But what do we need to do? What do you do? Where do you go? You look upon the light, the bright and shining, glorious one of Jesus. And as the light beams into our lives, what happens in a darkened room? It shines brightly. It fills the room. It warms the room. It was freezing this morning. I'm in San Antonio. The humidity is like a bazillion. And then we drive over here and say, oh my goodness, are we in Alaska? It's so cold now. It's amazing. And I'm driving here this morning and I'm freezing. And then I'm, I notice I'm just parked in the parking lot for a while and the sun is just shining into the car. And I'm hot. The light shines upon you, it illuminates, it, it brings an affection of affectionate warmth upon us in our hearts. Where do you look, church, that you look over and over and over again upon the glorious and wonderful light of Jesus, beaming out of the empty tomb, beaming out of the empty cross, beaming in glorious resurrection life. Amen. Let's pray.
Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus. Oh, prayer teams, worship team, go ahead and come up. Sorry. And let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus. You truly are glorious. You truly are so good. Lord, would you shine upon our hearts as you did Mary? Would you continue? You have, but would you continue to shine upon us, Lord, to see your glorious worth and to declare it? That we couldn't help but sit at the table. We can't sit at the table and stay quiet. I gotta talk about this. I gotta, I gotta say it. I gotta talk to you. I gotta declare it. I gotta sing it. Lord, may that be the case for us. Just a growing response of declaring the extravagant worth of our wonderful Savior. Help us in this. Help us. So often we, we are tempted to value the things of this world and look away from the true treasure. Lord, redirect us with your shepherd hands. Redirect us as the lead pastor. Billy, you, Alan, all these guys, they're pastors, but you are the lead pastor here. Take your people by the hand. Take their sweet eyes and lift them up to look upon you and say, look here. Here is where you find life. Nothing else can satisfy. Nothing else can care for you. Nothing else will hold you. Nothing else will keep you. Nothing else can heal the wounds of your broken heart. Nothing else can give life like I can. You are the true treasure. Be the treasure of our hearts. And may it overflow in our personal lives, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our school. May it overflow on Sundays, the greatest day, the best day of the week, at the dearest place on earth. We are at the table on Sundays. Oh, may it be so for us here. We love you. But we know, how can we love you? Because you have poured out your love upon us. Oh, may it be a life then filled of sitting at the table, laying hold of your feet. In Jesus' precious, precious, and sweet and holy name we pray. as a prayer. Treat this call of the song as a prayer of your heart. When we say, Jesus, you are all that I want, all that I need, all that I have. Say, Jesus, make that true in my heart. Let my heart follow the words of this song.